The scripture reading this morning is the Psalm number 16. I'll bring, as is my custom, out of the New King James Version. God's Word declares, A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Last week um, and this week, a pair of messages that uh, fall into the category of encouragement. Some messages are more of challenging and uh, sometimes they're really hard to preach. Um, but necessary. And I don't avoid them. You guys already know that. Um, but we recognize that we need some instruction sometimes. We need correction and rebuke sometimes. And God's Word is sufficient for those. And the expectation is that the uh, man of His Word would communicate all of that, the whole counsel of God, and not just picking and choosing. And in order to do that, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And this is how we work our way through God's Word. It's very seldom that you will see a topical series by me uh, from the pulpit. Now, perhaps in Bible study settings and Sunday school, but seldom from the pulpit. Um, because I believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture, that as we go through it completely, we will come across times of rebuke when we need it. We will come across times of instruction. And we will come across times of encouragement. And last week, I hope, was an encouraging time, but there was also some instruction there. Would you agree? That as we look at the fact that we are not held under the law, we are also recognized that while I'm not required to keep the law, I am have, God does have an expectation that I be different. That there be a distinction between those who claim Christ's name and those who are not. That I can look around in my culture and the more uh, attached my culture is to certain facets of uh, their priorities of their life experiences and uh, their commitments, uh, we, we recognize that we need to be distinct from that. We need to be separate from that. And that uh, the more it characterizes them, the less it should be in the church. But in fact, we have found the reverse. That in fact, throughout history, the world has steadily, especially in the American church, Western church, uh, that the world has really infiltrated us very successfully. Pastor Leisham and I were just having a conversation between Sunday school and church about that, that how pastor after pastor and generation after generation, going back into the 1800s, even sometimes the 1700s, early 1900s, late 1900s, have all at the end of their ministry looked back and said, oh, we, the church is in so much trouble because they have become so worldly over my lifespan. So the world has been infiltrating us, and very effectively. And so when we get up and say that we have a challenge, that we are not under the law, but we are called to be distinct from the world, um, that is a radical concept today in churches, where I find most churches seeking to be more like the world and thinking that that's how they're going to reach the world, is we've got to be like them to attract them. Um, I don't know about you, but I've never found insects attracted to darkness. They're always attracted to the light. And uh, you have to be different. You have to stand out. And the way we do that is by not living the way they live, by not listening to what they listen to, by not speaking the way they speak, by not dressing the way they dress, by not engaging in what they engage in. 
that we stand in righteousness and truth. And we saw that, that there is a great liberty that we have. We are not under the law, nor is there ever anything in the New Testament that would seek to put us under any aspects of the law, for we live in a righteousness that should transcend the law. That is to be above the law. And so, uh, an encouraging statement with a challenge attached to it. This morning, we want to look in the book of Acts at a series of passages that uh, we have uh, already read. We've really already studied, um, but we're going to come to their conclusion today. And they had this in common, that as they saw the working of God amongst them, it brought encouragement or rejoicing to the people of God. And this we want to consider this morning is not uh, a, a means to simply rejoice in the work of men, but when the movement of God is evident and real, and we're going to define that a little bit tonight, today, because I think that we have a skewed idea of what is the evidence of the working of God and the blessing of God. Um, we have skewed that into the American dream. And that is probably about the farthest thing from what it really is, what the blessing of God really looks like. And so we're going to see what the, what the outworking, the, the, the conclusion of the working of God means, what it means for the church. Um, and in this area of encouragement, we have, if you go back in, we, re, we want to begin really by a look at how Paul began the re, the, his return vo- Journey on his first missionary journey, his return trip as they visited place after place. And we found this dual aspect of strengthening the souls. I'm in chapter 14 of Acts, by the way, verse 22. If you want to know where I'm at, chapter 14, verse 22 of Acts. I should really give you this information before I just start reading, shouldn't I? Um, don't you already know all this? We already preached this. You should have it down. Uh, so it's Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Paul, on his return trip, it says that he strengthened the souls, strengthened the souls of the disciples, those of the followers of Jesus Christ, and exhorted them to continue in the faith. And we talked about the strengthening aspect of that instruction, that edification, the exhorting of that encouragement and challenge that we are, that there is an exhortation aspect that it has some warning with it And the warning is, watch out, there are going to be tribulations, but greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so, you're overcomers. You're going to overcome that tribulation, but you have to be expectant of it to have the right attitude to overcome this. So he says, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you're going to do so through much tribulation. And you and I would think, well, that's not really encouraging. (laughs) Why? Because our view of of the blessing of God is comfort and ease, and a lack of anything of opposition, correct? That's our view. That, that means I'm blessed of God. If I'm wealthy, healthy, and rested, and comfortable, then I must be blessed of God. That's why our country must have God's hand upon it, and we must be the most blessed nation on earth, because we are the, one of the wealthiest, and we are certainly the uh, number one consuming country on earth. There's no doubt of that, about that, that uh, we live in, in luxury, uh, compared to the rest of the world. Um, you go to the bathroom in luxury compared to the rest of the world. Trust me. If you've ever traveled internationally, you know that you go to the bathroom in the greatest luxury on the planet. So that time you spend in front of the mirror and with uh, running water in four or five different places. Um, great luxury. Well, that must mean we're blessed of God. Well, for Paul, he was encouraging the people that... You're going to enter the kingdom of God, that's excellent, but you must do so through much tribulation. That tribulation is actually one of the evidences of the blessing of God. That's not God being against you. Remember, what tribulation was? Tribulation was the world being against you. That one of the things we should rejoice in, if we go back in the book of Acts, one of the things that brought joy to the disciples is that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. That they were counted worthy of getting beat up. And they left getting beat up and rejoicing that they were counted worthy of filling up the sufferings of our Lord. That that is an expectation. And that they it brought great joy to their life. That it meant that we're doing the right thing because if the world loves us, what do it means about us? It means that we're not different. If the world is, is 
doesn't care about us, is apathetic towards us. If the world thinks we're wonderful, we have problems. The problem is we're not living any differently than them, and they're, we're acceptable in their sight. And in that condition, the world is lost. I'm sorry, the church is lost. The world is lost too because they don't have a light to follow. They don't have anywhere to go. If we're just like them, why should they seek anything that we possess? So we are called to be different. And when you are that different, as radically different as God's Word calls us to be in Christ, then the world is going to be mindful of it. They're going to see it and they're going to respond negatively to it by and large. Some individuals will receive that testimony. But remember, it was the religious leaders, religious leaders, the religious leaders who condemned and beat up the apostles. So we're not talking about just out there, but maybe inside the church is where we're going to find some of the greatest assaults on living for Christ. And tribulation is going to come again at the hands of men, not just the godless men out there who are following Allah and blowing themselves up, but quote-unquote godly people, religious people within our very churches is where tribulation, and maybe the worst kind of tribulation, is generated from. And yet... Paul says this to encourage you. This is to, to exhort you. Um, you're going to get through those tribulations by the power and grace of God to enter into the kingdom of God. There is something worthwhile at the end to endure the hatred of men. Well, let's press on and, and see what else was transpiring here in these early uh, return of, of Paul and Barnabas from their first journey where they extended the gospel as we know it today. It says uh, at the end of chapter 14, they had, uh, verse 27, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And the excitement that that brought, they stayed there a long time, and they're thrilled. And everything is going well, until some folks come up from Jerusalem who haven't heard the report. And they come up and they say, you've got to be circumcised. That's not enough just to accept Jesus. And this, of course, created all the confusion uh, and, and sought to steal the joy. Sought, sought, sought to steal the enthusiasm, the encouragement uh, of, of rejoicing that God intended to, for Jesus to die for all men, not just for a select group of men, not for just one nation of men called Israelites, not for one segment of society, not for just men and not women, not just for the rich and not the poor, but rather he died for all men. However you want to segregate men in your mind, um, God, Christ died for them. And this excitement that was being generated there in Antioch to the point that Antioch was almost becoming more of a Gentile church than a Hebrew church was attacked again by religious men. And so, um, we come to chapter 15, verse 3, and, and actually verse 2 says, Paul and Barnabas were sent by the church. We want you to go down to Jerusalem. We're going to straighten this up. You take these guys that say we should be circumcised. Take them down to Jerusalem. And we studied that last week, the, the results. But what I want to look at is verse 3, as we walk through the effect of the power of God and the working of God upon the church. So verse 3 says that, So being uh, sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. Again, we looked at this somewhat last week, um, but I didn't focus on verse 3 hardly at all. I knew that this Sunday was coming. And so we find that while they traveled, um, they head from Antioch, which is up north of Jerusalem some ways. They're going traveling through Phoenicia. Phoenicia, you got to think of as kind of the region along the Mediterranean coast. Uh, we would call it Lebanon today. Uh, they travel through Phoenicia. Uh, they, they travel through Samaria. Uh, again, that region uh, that would be kind of like southern Lebanon, northern Israel. And they traveled through that region, and all along the way, they kept meeting up with Christian bodies, and they started explaining to them, describing to them how all these Gentiles were coming to Christ. 
I'll switch to this one. There we go. I have a very bad influence on batteries. I am able to kill them in incredible speeds. It's a chemical electrical thing, I think. So as they travel down, this is going to be really hard. I hear this because my tongue is connected to my feet. So as we find him visiting all these churches, now remember, the church age is about 20 to 25 years old. So the church has been active about its business for some time. A couple of decades have gone by and recognized that it crossed nobody's mind, even after the event of Cornelius coming to Christ, it didn't cross anyone's mind that we should be preaching the gospel to everyone. Acts 1.8 says you've got to go to the other parts of the world. Well, sure, we have to go geographically to other places, but just to Jewish people. It never crossed their mind that God intended all men everywhere to hear the gospel and respond. It's, it's amazing. So 20 years. And, and so these areas have had churches established. They have bodies of saints well developed. And Paul and Barnabas are visiting them on their way down. They could take a, a really quick route down the Roman road, uh, uh, the Via Della Rosa. They, they could have jumped down there as quickly as they could. But instead, they took kind of a secure, circuitous route, um, just kind of meandered along Phoenicia, along the coast, and into Samaria, and just kind of made their way gently down to Jerusalem. All along the way, sharing with church after church that God had brought Gentiles salvation. And when we say God's brought Gentiles salvation, you and I don't think anything of it because we are predominantly, overwhelmingly Gentilian in the church. Not just the Western church, but pretty much all over the world. Um, with one or two exceptions. Israel being one of them. Where uh, most churches are, are Israeli. Surprising, isn't it? In Israel, the churches are full of Israelites. Strange. So we come to this report, and it doesn't bring contention. It doesn't bring the issues that were brought out by the divisive individuals. Overwhelmingly, church after church, when they hear the working of God, that he has opened the door of salvation to everyone who would trust in Christ and follow him, um, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, didn't matter that all could come to know him as Savior and Lord. This brought great joy to all the brethren. They rejoiced in it. So we have now the second facet that brings joy and comfort and encouragement to the people of God. Number one is that the world hates you. That should bring you comfort and joy. And if they don't, you should be gravely concerned today. Especially if you call yourself a Christian and the world doesn't dislike you. It should bring you grave concern. Am I living more like them than I ought to be? Am I not setting myself apart sufficiently? Am I not light and salt in their life? Or am I just, you know, the battery going dead on my flashlight? That I'm just this dim little representation of Christ that's so dim that no one can really hardly notice it. So that's the first thing that should bring comfort and encouragement in our lives is that, that we should anticipate the world's antagonism towards our message, towards our life, uh, towards our testimony. Secondly, what brings great joy is the recognition that God loves and desires the salvation of all men. That He has opened the door of faith to all men. That we have no right, no privilege, no, no discernment to say... These people are savable and these people aren't. We're going to reach these people and not those people for the gospel. And this takes many different forms in our society today. And I find them all repulsive. Every one of them. And I've heard them in very godly settings and spoken of in ways 
that make them sound almost biblical, but fundamentally every single one of them seeks to rob the church of the joy, of the universality of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That He is the second Adam has died for all men. The world is loved by God. Not just some in the world. And so I have had those times when I have sit in committee meetings and national organizations and heard men come up and say, well, I believe God has called me to reach my people with the gospel. And he said it repeatedly in his calling testimony. And, uh, and again, I'm in a group of 20 pastors that are interviewing these potential missionaries. And, and my statement my only question was, um, who are your people you keep talking about? Well, it's the people that look like him in their skin color. Well, God doesn't care about that. Period. That's irrelevant. End of discussion. I have heard other people, uh, church planting and church growth experts, to say, well, you need to reach this certain econ- social economic group. You need to have them all come together. You, in other words, you, we need middle class churches and we need poor churches and we need rich churches because, you know, middle class and poor people and rich people just don't get along very well together. And we need to segregate the church that way. Blech. That's what I think of that as well. Also, despicable, deplorable. The whole idea of it is antagonistic to the gospel and it will not bring joy to the church. It will always bring misery. It will always bring arrogance. It will always bring destruction. And then I've heard others who theologically have somehow come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ didn't die for all men. They only died for a certain few men. We'll call them the, uh, oh, why don't we just use their word, the elect. They've robbed a very important word in God's word. They've robbed a very, and filled it with their own meaning. And in fact, for many years in church history, there was no missionary activity going on at all. Can you imagine that? No missionary activity going on at all. You know why? This was the statement made to a man named William Carey, who is considered the father of modern missions. William Carey, about 120 years ago, um, in England, who had to switch entire denominations. You know why? Because the men of his movement had this to say when he said he wanted to go with the gospel to a heathen land. This is their statement. If God wants to save them, he can save them out your help or mine. They're obviously not the elect. And because of their Calvinism, they could not see that they had any responsibility to reach anyone else with the gospel except their own children, maybe. And so he had to leave them. And guess who he joined up with so they could get sent out as a missionary? Yeah, a bunch of Baptists. I said, we believe Jesus Christ died for everyone. And everyone needs to hear it. And great joy comes. Don't let this concept that somehow only those who look like us, who live like us, who talk like us, need the gospel that Jesus only loves certain people. He loves all men, died for all men, and desires all men everywhere to come to repentance. That's exactly the words of God's word. And this should bring us great joy. There is, there is no limitation on salvation. There is, except for the, whether or not men want to accept it or not. That's the only limitation. The only thing keeping you from Christ, if you are not one of Christ's followers today, is you. Because Christ has done everything for all men, for all time. He's complete. And the whole force of the Jerusalem Council was, you don't have to become Jewish to become Christian. Oh, no, 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 not at all. Just keep the laws Back there in Genesis, you know, the ones that were put on Noah, the ones that were expected of all men who followed after the Lord, outside of the law. Circumcision, that came well after. Abraham was already following God and was made righteous before he ever got circumcised. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the food laws. Don't worry about the Levitical laws. 
Just keep the laws that separate you, uh, that, that first of all, that recognize Christ the author of life, so we don't drink blood, that we recognize that he is the one true God, and so we don't worship other idols, and that we keep ourselves in such a manner that the world knows we are distinct, that we are different. That's what he calls us to. That we stay morally pure as he designed us in the garden. All before the law. And so this is all that we're going to require of people. So you don't have to become Jewish because Christ died for all men. And all men are coming to Christ. From all walks of life, mankind can be saved. And this brought joy to the church. Can you imagine them? I mean... There were Roman people and Greek people all around them in these communities in Phoenicia and Samaria. Remember what Samaria was? Class, you remember? Half Jews and half Gentiles. They were half-breeds. You think they were excited about this? Now they could take the gospel to the other half of their family. Not just their Jewish half could accept Christ. Their Gentile half could accept Christ too. No wonder they were full of joy. You mean anybody can be saved? Yes. And God wants them all. He's died for them all. With no distinction. No wonder there's so much joy filling the place. Well, we then had the Jerusalem Council, which we studied last week. And an exciting time uh, to find out that uh, we don't have to turn into law-abiding uh, Old Testament law-abiding people, that we are called to something much higher, much better, uh, and much purer. And so we find this letter that we studied last week sent out, and I come to chapter 15, verse 30, and I want us to read the results. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Isn't that great? They rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted, there's that word again, and strengthened the brethren with many words. The exact two words that we saw in chapter 14, what Paul and Barnabas did to the churches they returned visited. They strengthened and exhorted, now they exhorted and strengthened. And after they stayed there for a time, same thing that we saw before Paul and Antioch, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So, the church is encouraged. What are they encouraged by? What are they rejoicing over? Well, we saw the first level of encouragement was about you're going to have to go through much tribulation. People are going to hate you. It's okay. In fact, that's a good thing. Because when people who are against God or against you, it probably means that you're with God. So that's a good thing. Be happy. You should be really concerned if it's not true. Number two, you should be encouraged and filled with joy that God is saving people from all peoples. That there is no distinguishment that salvation is available to all who would receive it. That there is no one, the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, that we should withhold salvation from. There's none. They all should hear the gospel because they all can respond and all of them can be saved. No one is so bad that they, Christ can't save them. Perhaps the other side is probably more true. Some people are just too good for God to save them. Isn't that what Jesus said? I've come to call the sinners to salvation, not the righteous. If you think you're righteous without Christ, you're going to have a hard time. That was Paul's problem. And God can correct that problem. <laughs> he can poke you. Goad, 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 goad. And finally, Paul's confront, Saul's confronted with Christ himself and blinded to humble him. And so finally, Saul could say, I was the greatest of sinners. The one who thought himself self-righteous realized all that self-righteousness was garbage. And he threw it all away because that's where it all belonged, to follow Jesus. So even the self-righteous are savable. And Paul is a testimony to that. Even religious people 
can be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And need to be. So there's great joy there. The third area of great joy in the church is the liberty that comes with salvation. And again, we studied extensively this last week. Um, and Galatians goes into it uh, even further. And we're going to go and read a portion of that. Um, but we talk about the joy and the wonder, and we've sung about it already this morning, of our sins being taken away that they have been washed away from us, that we have been granted the righteousness, not that's our own, but of Jesus Christ, that God has, has supernaturally assigned it to us. The, the, the fancy word we use is imputed, but that is to count it toward us. That when Christ lived a perfect life, um, he counts that righteousness for us. So Christ not only takes away our sin, he also gives us, Righteousness, And that goes all the way back to Abraham and before. That by faith he was counted righteous. That is that he didn't perform righteously. In fact, Abraham did some really stupid things, sinful things of not trusting in God. But yet he was counted righteous. Another great example is David. Friend of God, right? King David. Counted righteous by faith. How much sin did he commit? Murder? Adultery, you name it. Noah, righteous one, has a drunken episode. These guys aren't counting on their own righteousness. They're counting on the righteousness of Christ. And so they follow after him. That will give them that which they don't deserve. And so in this state of salvation, we have this great liberty. A liberty... Not to live however you like. And that's the American version of, oh, God has blessed us with liberty. I can be and dress and act however I like. And I've been in some churches that they so emphasized it that it became a stumbling block to the church itself. That you couldn't address anything in the church because they all claimed liberty. Liberty, 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 liberty. You know, and so nothing ended up being ever sin. Nothing was ever wrong. And so the girls could wear whatever they wanted and it didn't matter how immodest it was. I mean, wear a bikini to church. You know, that's not wrong. I have freedom in Christ. They didn't understand what that freedom meant. And instead of bringing joy to the church, it brought misery. It brought heartache. It brought bitterness. It brought division. And, and none of that was intended by this passage. We've already seen the contents of the letter and the requirements of it, that it calls us to be distinct, to be separate, to be called to Christ. And that is that what Christ did and what this letter represents is that liberty is liberty from keeping this law of man. This law that God gave to man to point to his sin. Remember, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is that you can't keep them. <laughs> That's the purpose of them. Is that you can't keep them. No man ever has. Its purpose is to teach you that you're a dirty, rotten sinner and you can't get to heaven that way. So in our little song that we sing with the kids, no, you can't get to heaven. And we talk about roller skates and some other things and what else they sing about? Rocking chairs and all these. You know what? You can't get to heaven by the Ten Commandments. And that's their point. The whole point of Ten Commandments is that you can't get to heaven. That's what they're there to teach you. Try to keep them. You'll fail. And as soon as you fail, and you've already failed, by the way, you can't undo the sin you've already got. And so, and, and so let's point to that and let's show you that how miserable sinner you are. You can't get there through this. Ten Commandments aren't there to save people, technically. They are, but directly they can't. Their whole purpose is to show you you can't get to heaven by being good. But you're, So you're free from that. The law condemned you. Every time you go, oh man, I have done that. I disobeyed my parents. I, I was doomed before I even got to adulthood. Yes, you were. <laughs> Every last one of you. I know that my kids were. I know that about myself, too. 
So right there, I, I'm caught before I'm even an adult by the law. And it brought misery. It brings, it brings sadness and sorrow because what can I do? Nothing. And that's why Christ died for us. He did it for us. Now that he has done that for us, now that we have received it, as we saw under our second point that brings joy to the church, we have this liberty from the law. The law pointed us to our sin and said, you deserve judgment. You deserve punishment. And God says, now I'm going to save you from that punishment by taking your sin on myself. And this Jesus Christ did on the cross. And now you simply need to become his follower to say, I, I'm going to trust in Christ and Christ alone. I'm going to follow after him and, and walk, seek to walk worthy of the Lord. Trusting in him all the way and not in myself. Now that I'm in that condition, now that I have accepted Christ, what brings great joy is the liberty I have not from doing righteously. I have a liberty from sin. I have freedom not to sin. And that was what is that issue in the letter generated out of Jerusalem. We are no longer walking around pointing at sin. That is not the work of God in the believer's life. That is not what he intends to do. Um, what he really wants to do is walk around and point at obedience. You have the power to obey God that you never had before. Once you have trusted in Christ as your Savior. You have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. You have a new nature. The old nature is put to death. And now we have the power to do righteously so much that it's far above the law. The law is laughable now. Should be. Keeping the law, that's like child's play. I'm not worried about the law. Why? Because I'm seeking to be just like my Savior. And we gave some examples last week that Christ used. And so I don't worry. I, I, I'm not worried about committing murder. I'm not worried about thou shalt not kill. It doesn't cross my mind very often. I have raised children. <laughs> Why doesn't it cross my mind? Because I'm not concerned about thou shalt not kill. I'm concerned about Christ's statement that says, don't hate your brother. And if you can eradicate hate out of your life, murder is pretty much... I haven't really considered that. Why? Well, I'm trying to love you with the love of God. And that extends to all men. Even the person pointing a gun at me. Shouting something about Allah in Arabic. I can still love that person. And I don't need to kill them. This is the power of the freedom we have in Christ to not sin. That we have the power to do righteously, to be godly now. And it again boils down to do we want to serve the Lord or do we want to serve ourselves? And what they were rejoicing to see is that, you know, this isn't about pointing out my sin. This is about pointing out that I should be living for Christ, that I need to be I need to live for him. I need to live like him. I need to live in righteousness and, and as a thanksgiving statement to the one who saved me, who died for me. And this is the motivation of the Christian life, is our love for God and our love for one another. John, of course, brings this out in First John, and we've studied that in the past. But um, you can't say you love God and hate your brother. You can't say you love God and continue in sin. You just can't. Those are antithetical to each other. I invite you to turn to Galatians very quickly. Because Paul also summarized this in the book of Galatians, in chapter 5. We could read the whole book, but in chapter 5, a very powerful statement. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Not free to do whatever you want. Here's what you're free from. 
and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. What's the bondage? Indeed, here we go. I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You must become estranged from Christ. You have, who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And here we go. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And that really becomes the question. What keeps you from obeying the truth of God? Because the law is going to be something that will hinder you from obeying the truth of God. Because you're going to be worried about things you shouldn't be concerned about. Verse 8, This persuasion does not come from him who calls you a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you even would cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even then, this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lust of the flesh, for the flesh, I'm sorry, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentious, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that in those who practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if any man is overtaken any trespass, you who are spiritually restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And it goes on. And we, like I said, we read the whole book. <laughs> the sum of the law we meet by the power of the Spirit and Christ in us, we can meet it. And that is summarized in that one word that we love. We love our enemies. We love our brethren. We love those who curse us. We pray for them who abuse us. We desire to reach all men with this powerful, wonderful gospel. And this brings rejoicing that we have this opportunity to serve God. This is the joy facet of not being under the law is that now I don't have to worry about keeping these all these laws there are like 600 of them plus in the Old Testament I don't have to worry about what I'm eating that significantly anymore about whether it's sin or not I don't have to worry about if I wash properly and and have I fulfilled the requirements um, I don't have to keep pointing at my sin rather I have an opportunity to walk in the Spirit and to serve God and not have to fret over all of this stuff because now what drives my life is that I love others. Once that drives my life, the law is fulfilled. If I humble myself before God and therefore esteem others better than myself, the Bible says in Philippians, like I said last week, you're not going to covet why would I covet something you have? I'm glad you have it. If I have contentment that godliness is, um, brings contentment, 
If I have contentment, then I'm not going to covet. All I have to do is focus on walking with God, and the laws just kind of drop off the radar. I don't need to worry about them. What I need to focus on isn't not sinning. What I need to focus on is walking in the spirit of fulfilling the law of Christ, which is that we love. Love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as if they were you. This is the Christian walk. It boils down to that. How simple. What a relief. Remember, for 20 years, the church has been trying to keep the law and follow Christ. And now comes this message. No. Just follow Christ. You don't need to put your attention on the law. That's for before you got saved. Before you got saved, sure, you confront the lost people with the Ten Commandments. And by the way, that's why they need to be in the public arena. (laughs) That's why they don't want them in the public arena. Right? Because what does it declare? It declares that you're a rotten sinner and you can't get to heaven. And the world doesn't like to hear that. No wonder they don't want it. You know, the thing in the courthouse. One of the oldest legal documents that we have. They don't want that codex there because it reminds them that they're sinners and they need somebody to save them. That's why they don't like to hear it. But for the believer, we don't need the law displayed here. We don't need the Ten Commandments displayed here. We have a commandment to display here, and that is that we love. And once you have accomplished that, you fulfill the law and a much more. Now we are walking in the fruit of the Spirit of love, and there's that next word, joy, that we are talking about. The joy of the church derived from a liberty to love one another and, and to not be caught in sin any longer. I don't have to sin anymore. I can follow after Christ. I have the power within me. I have the truth before me. I have the, the, the presence of Christ in my life. I can do that which pleases God by simply walking in the Spirit. Will we fail? Will we fall sometimes? Yeah. Um, and, and that's disconcerting. There's no doubt about it. That's disappointing. It's frustrating. But we aren't condemned by that. We aren't condemned. Can we stand under God's discipline as His children because we violated righteousness? Yes. But we're not condemned as His enemies. There's a big difference. And so, 1 John tells us that we who accepted Christ when we have sinned, that we are to confess our sin and He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But that stands there. That, that promise is there. But I have a great liberty. And the church realized that and brought great joy that you have a great liberty to do what's righteous, to love like no one in this world can because of what Christ has done in you and to you. And this is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the third region of joy that we live in. That we ought to be rejoicing every day. Number one, because ungodly people don't like me. Even if they're my family, even if they're co-workers, and instead of complaining and moping and acting like you're the, you're the greatest martyr on the planet because people don't like you, um, you should be rejoicing. Oh, I must be living different enough. <laughs> By the way, don't be sad when you hear about Christians being slaughtered in Libya and Syria. You should be rejoicing. They have a powerful testimony to those men and sometimes women and sometimes children that are doing the murdering. You should be envious of them. Does that mean we're rejoicing the act that was committed? No, it's a horrible, violent act. But we should be rejoicing that these people stood up and said, you could take my head off. 
I'm still serving Christ. Why aren't we celebrating that, people? Why aren't we rejoicing and say, wow, and then go, I wonder if I would do that. It's cause of celebration, of joy. It should be cause of joy that God wants to reach all men everywhere with his gospel. It should be cause of joy that you have the power and the privilege and the capacity now to live righteously in a godless world. That you are not held by the law, but you are seeking to conform yourself to the image of Christ. That is cause for joy. And our Christian living should be filled with joy. What's the worst that anyone can do to you? Take your head off? That's the worst? And that's the best. (laughs) That means I've stood up and I've stood sufficiently for Christ. The world took notice. I didn't deny him. I didn't back down. And I took the heat and I took the tribulation and I was counted worthy of that. God had the confidence that I would keep that testimony pure. I'd be that light against the darkness to the very end. And for that, there's joy, encouragement. Even as much that many are coming to know Christ. And that we aren't hearing about. But the fact is, there's a great revival going on in those very lands. That Muslims are coming to Christ in unprecedented numbers. And that's what's getting everyone's attention. And we should be rejoicing. Forever the blood of saints has been spilled for the name of Christ. The cause of Christ has multiplied. Not because we kill in his name, but because we die in his name. And so we rejoice. And we rejoice further that we can live righteously and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and for the privileges that you have afforded us. That the world may hate us and yet we love them and want to share Christ with them because we know that you've died for them. And that while the world wants us to sin, that we are free from it and can live righteously and godly here. Lord, we rejoice in all that you have accomplished on our behalf and in us by the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray this morning for those that are under the hearing of this message, both here in this room and and later on through podcasts and CDs and things that don't know you as Savior and Lord, that have not committed their lives to you, have not surrendered. Lord, I pray that they might do so even today. And choose this day to follow after you with all their heart. To allow you and you alone to cleanse them of sin. To grant them righteousness that they could never earn and never deserve. They might walk in your ways. Lord, we pray. May I bring many to a confession of Christ. They might believe in their heart. You are Lord. You are raised from the dead. And confess that with their mouth. That they might be saved. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.